Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that hates imperialism. Today we have Laura, Zoe, Julia, and Walita. Welcome back, Walita. Exciting. (laughs) Well, we're so you know, we're talking about foreign policy, so I had to invite Walita back. I'm very happy to be here. This is very exciting. I love talking anti-imperialism. It's like my jam. It's my whole thing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We're so fucking happy to have you with us. You're a perfect angel who we miss all the time. And uh, so just to give some folks some info today, we're talking about Afghanistan. As you probably know, the Taliban has taken over provinces across the country, ultimately leading up to Kabul, the capital city. Um, This comes at the same time as the United States is exiting its 20-year occupation slash war with Afghanistan. Of course, there is a lot to unpack here, um, including the history of the United States in this region. Um, and what this governmental takeover means. Um, And we will by no means be covering like everything that there possibly is to know about this, but we're going to do our best. And luckily, we're going to start off with some like understanding of what imperialism has looked like in this region. And that is one of the main reasons why we brought Walita back to talk to us. (laughs) And I'm very happy to talk about it. I can talk about it forever. Um, One of the things that I will say about imperialism is, you know, for just like a basic understanding of what it is, it's, it's, you know, when, when, when capital moves beyond its own borders, because it, it has run out of things in its own borders to exploit, um, you know, it, it goes elsewhere. And, you know, that's, in, at its core, what imperialism is, um, there's otherwise no reason to go into other countries and take them over other than exploiting all of their natural resources and, and their labor. Imperialism expresses itself uh, very similarly everywhere. Um, I was recently on a call uh, here in Chicago, for Chicago DSA um, where some comrades were discussing um, sort of the the character of imperialism in South and Central America. And so much of what was said Um, is exemplified like in the Middle East or in South Asia, um, you know, where there are resources or labor to exploit, the empires will come. Um, They will foment civil war. They'll they'll pit populations against populations. Um, They'll install their preferred leaders. They will write the laws governing the extraction and selling of of that area's resources favorable to the empire. Um, they'll supply the government with weapons and military support to ensure, quote unquote, stability, you know, enough stability where stuff can be taken out of the country and sold, which in essence means they police the population. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'll bring and they'll give birth to nonprofits and NGOs to sort of, uh, you know, work on, you know, what's called international development to show they're rebuilding the country when it's nothing really more than busy work to make the population feel like it's getting something from the empire and makes work for people who want to travel and live, uh, live abroad. I know that because I was briefly part of that world and it was extremely terrible and I quit it and became a software developer instead. <laughs> Hell yeah. um, 
So, you know, what we see in Afghanistan is not much different. It has natural resources. It is geographically situated in a place that's very um, integral to our military conquests and and, uh, desires in the region. Um, We've been there for a long time. It's why the Soviet Union went in there. It's why we went in there. So, yeah, it's a good military base for us. It's got a lot of natural resources that we want. Uh, It is a very gigantic country with lots of different languages and cultures and religions. I mean, it's mostly Muslim, but it also has other religions in there and different sects of Islam. Um, So, yeah, it's let's let's get talking about Afghanistan. Hell yeah. Wow. Thank you for all of that. Yeah, uh, going off of that, like thinking about how imperialism expresses itself similarly across different contexts, I just wanted to talk briefly about Afghanistan's early history as it relates to imperialism. Um, Like Walida mentioned, there are a lot of reasons why the area that is now called Afghanistan is strategically important, and a lot of people have wanted to take it over with their empires. Um, It sits between Asia and Europe in a way that's been strategically desirable for a lot of early empires. Um, So Alexander the Great took control of the territory in the 300s BC, way back in the day, (laughs) and Genghis Khan also added it to his empire in the 1200s. Um, And then in the 1800s, Britain also saw it as a desirable area of land to control to help protect their existing imperial power in India. Um, And this led to roughly 100 years of on and off wars between the British Empire and people living in what is now Afghanistan. Um, And the modern boundaries of the country were actually defined by Britain and Russia fighting over it and essentially imperial powers deciding what they thought was the most strategically important. So finally, after World War One, Britain was no longer able to keep up its attack. And in 1921, Afghanistan formally became an independent nation. Um, so that's kind of the backstory to the rest of what we're going to talk about. But just to say that this has been an area that a lot of people have been interested in controlling um, and making a part of their empires for a long time. So I'll just quickly say that after World War One, a lot of borders were drawn. I mean, that's when Iraq became a country. It's when Iran became a country. It's when Turkey became a country. It's when Lebanon became a like all of all of these borders were drawn shortly after World War One because it was very clear that the United States was emerging as a superpower slowly but surely. Um, and England uh, meddled in all of these places and drew these arbitrary lines according to their own interests. And um, we see we see a lot of these nations born around that time. Yeah, um, I love hearing Walida talk. Also, Thank I've <laughs> um, yeah, Walida and I have gotten dinner a couple times since I moved to Chicago, and I feel like literally this is exactly what our conversations are. Like Walida is no yeah. different. Podcasting than it's true than just hanging out. It's amazing. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I feel like we talked about this like a few weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> Except for like add martinis, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to talk um a little bit about the history post um World War One, uh, especially as it relates to where we are now and also focusing on some of how women's rights have changed over time in Afghanistan, since this is something that apparently people in the U.S. really fucking care about. Um, (laughs) But we'll get there. 
So also, I just wanted to say a lot of this information was actually like very difficult to um, kind of parse out because there's just so, so much like heavy U.S. imperialist bias in all of the information that's like mm-hmm. on Google. I'm not going to say I was like doing intense academic searches. I was Googling things. Um <laughs> And what came up was very biased. Yeah, so in the 1920s, under King Khan, there was a push towards more, quote, Western-style reforms to improve women's livelihood. And this included things like banning child marriage, discouraging um, polygamy, limiting the jurisdiction of religious leaders, and women were no longer required to wear a veil. And a lot of this was due to a girl boss queen named Soraya, who opened the first girls school in Kabul and generally champion these sorts of like liberal reforms in Afghanistan. Just a true Yas Queen moment. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm canceling myself after that joke. <laughs> uh, yeah. Then King Khan's successor, Mohammed Nadir Shah, repealed many of those more quote progressive policies um, due to a widespread backlash. However, the the next leader, Zahir Shah, who was the last king of Afghanistan and ruled from 1933 to 1973, re-implemented many of the policies over um, the course of his rule. And in 1964, he had um, women help draft a new constitution, which gave them the right to vote and run for political office. And around that time, women also began to get more jobs and join the workforce which was a pretty similar timeline to the feminist movement in the U.S. as well. And then in 1973 was a coup, which President Mohammed Daoud Khan came to power. Thank you, Alita, for... <laughs> you said that correctly. Good yes, job. thank you. I practiced, <laughs> but then I still forgot. Um, Very relatable. <laughs> anyway... He was in power until April 1978, when there was the Saar Revolution, also referred to as the April Revolution, which was led by the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, and that was a Soviet-aligned party. So the Soviets then occupied Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989 in support of the communist government. During the Soviet-Afghan War, which was a very violent and um, deadly decade and war, There were approximately 20,000 women who were enlisted by the Soviets, and they were mainly in supporting roles um, like nurses and doing kind of more of the care work for the military. But that was still a large increase in what women had previously been able to do. Um, The Soviet-backed government also made many attempts to increase women's rights by implementing policies such as equal employment rights and mandating education for girls. They also implemented an Afghan Women's Council, the AWC, which provided social services to women. Um, Also important to note, and as we see in essentially all leftist movements, but there was um, uh, still a big issue with like patriarchy um, in the movement and women faced a lot of discrimination and sexual harassment by their quote comrades. Wow, you hate to see men existing really in any context. They're just you do. They just yeah. They can't. They just fuck it all up. (laughs) Yep. So also during the Soviet Afghan War, should come as no surprise that the U.S. was involved in the foreign aid being used to prop up the rebels to the communist regime, and the civil war raged on after the withdrawal, which ultimately set the stage for the Taliban's takeover. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, And folks may have heard of the proxy wars, which is basically a facet of the Cold War, where the U.S. and Soviet Union would use another country as a playground for their unending desire for world domination. And unfortunately, Afghanistan was deeply affected by this war, as Zoe was talking about. It was a super violent war. There was nothing cold about it. It was um, extremely violent. And that's like how uh, the U.S., tried to keep its hands clean, so to speak, in that time, even though obviously they did not at all in reality. Yeah, that is that is what the third world was, right? Like there was the the first world, which was the West, the second world, which is the Soviet bloc, and then the third world, which was the rest of it. And that's where they fought all their wars. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the CIA was funding and arming groups that were fighting against the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. And those groups ultimately became what is now the Taliban. So the idea that the U.S. didn't actually intervene in Afghanistan until 2001 is quite false. However, women did face intense backlash after the Soviets withdrew troops. And a few years later, they withdrew monetary aid as well. Um, And then the the Taliban took power in 1996. So they were in power in 2001. And you might know what happens in 2001. Um, That's when the U.S., once again, enters Afghanistan. I feel like some listeners, born. maybe maybe were born after 2001. Oh, my God. To me, is insane. You're so right. Oh because God. I was in college when 2001 was happening. Yeah. <laughs> so, so to me, it's like, oh, my God. You no, were born after. If you haven't heard of 2001, let us know you. The airports didn't used to be like that. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Anyway, yes, that takes us to the start of the war in Afghanistan. So this is uh, the longest war in U.S. history. Um, The declared aims of the war were to remove al-Qaeda from the country um, because obviously (laughs) what we are all hinting at is 9-11-2001, which uh, in the U.S.'s mind was specifically linked um, to al-Qaeda and particularly Osama bin Laden. Um, so the declared aims of the war were to remove al-Qaeda from the country, ensure the rights of women and minorities, and establish a democratic republic. So a lot of those things that Walida was talking about in the beginning. Um, as the United States unleashed its military on Afghanistan, the Taliban quickly retreated from major cities to allow the Northern Alliance, a coalition of former anti-communist movements, Mujahideen to to take power. So the new Afghan government was a coalition of warlords, elites, and technocrats from different parts of the world. So part of this government is not made up of people who were even like living in Afghanistan. In 2003, women's rights activist Malale Joya made headlines when she publicly challenged the new rulers of the country, calling them out for their, quote, crimes against Afghans in the Loyola Jirga, which is the Grand Assembly of Elders. In 2005, Joya was elected as a parliamentarian from the Farah province, and she used her platform to highlight the corruption and violence facilitated by the NATO forces. Um, And unfortunately, critical voices like hers were ignored. In 2012, Afghanistan ranked at the bottom of the Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. 
President Karzai and his family were accused of being involved in murky, corrupt deals with international organizations. One scandal was a cash, quote, gift from Iran in 2010 to renovate the presidential palace. His brother, Mahmoud Karzai, was involved in multiple corruption scandals, including running Ponzi schemes through the Kabul Bank um, and leading to its collapse in 2011. This corruption was in part of the design, design formulated by the occupying forces by the United States. In 2013, a New York Times report exposed how the CIA was bribing the Karzai government to win favors for its short-term goals. The report revealed that the occupying forces were fueling corrupt practices rather than fighting them, which who is surprised? (laughs) Uh, Nobody is surprised. (laughs) Nobody is surprised, except like the the swaths. (laughs) <laughs> the the liberal swaths and also the conservatives, of course. Anyway, <sighs> in 2014, Karzai blamed the United States for facilitating corruption in Afghanistan, claiming that the majority of corruption took place through formal contracts, mainly issued by U.S. officials. If I can quickly just interject, Please. like I saw, I, so like I've seen this happen. Um, I've like seen what these contracts are for, for like in war theaters, as they call them in war theaters and post-war theaters where like they'll, they'll hand out these contracts. I lived in DC for many years and I had a lot of friends that worked in these, you know, for these companies and they were like, do nothing contracts. They were like, they would pay out all this, all this money. They would pay companies to, to be like, okay, you have to do X, Y, and Z in this country. And most of it would not get done. And the company would just kind of make up the things they did, their accomplishments and whatever quotas they met. And that would be that they would get paid out. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like a money laundering scheme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how it is all over the world with this stuff. It's infuriating. Yeah. The private contractors are the like you know you know how vox always makes those articles that are like the three winners and two losers of blah 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 anyway i hate vox i'm always like (laughs) out to get them but i feel like they would be like private contractors are the winners of the war in afghanistan Um, oh yeah for fucking real so thank you for that um also very infamously and like a lot of this was kind of like illustrated in um, Jeremy Scahill's book, which I'm forgetting the name of, but it's all about drone warfare. Um, But the war in Afghanistan became a testing ground for surveillance efforts and also drone warfare. Um, Because of the inherent lack of humanity entrenched entrenched in drone warfare, like it's often literally operated by some dude in Nebraska with a joystick. Um, The increase of Afghan civilians being murdered by the U.S., less and less Afghani people supported the U.S., Additionally, enforced disappearances that began with whisking people away to Guantanamo Bay became an integral method used by the Pakistan and Afghan governments to manage internal dissent, which is another one of the more, like, sordid legacies. The U.S. was, you know, involved in just, like, disappearances of dissenters. And not to to mention the, like, torturing. Oh yeah, we did a lot of that. When I when I remember when I um when I finished graduate school and I and I was looking for work, I got a call from a private contractor. Um, I don't remember which one. I would totally name them, but I genuinely forgot the name. And they were offering me an extremely well paid job in Afghanistan. And when I asked what the details were, 
This is what they said. They said, we want you to go around Afghanistan and get the public opinion about how they view the United States. This was in like 2007 or something, 2006, 2007. And I was like, well, what are the details? How would I do that? How am I traveling the country? How am I meeting these people? Oh, you'll be embedded. You'll get weapons training and you will be embedded with the U.S. military and they will take you around to Afghan villages where you will go into people's homes and ask them what they think about the United States. And I was like, so I'm going to go around with uniformed soldiers with guns and ask Afghans how they feel about America. Yeah. With the uniformed soldiers standing behind me. I was like, what do you guys think you're going to get out of this? this field research yeah kind of shit i'm talking about like they'll they'll have these contracts where they're like we're gonna do pr in afghanistan we're gonna do all this public relations and go and get some feedback from the people but they they leave out the details we're like oh we're going into their homes with guns with u.s flags on our uniforms and asking them what they think about our country right just manufacturing the consent of yes Yes. Yeah, they love the U.S. there when you stand in their face with <laughs> rifles and make them say so. Yeah. Like, what do you and I told them this over. I'm like, what do you think they're going to say? Like, what do you think they're going to tell me? You, like, this is ridiculous. It, it was. I mean, of course, I turned the job down. I would. I yeah. didn't do it. But oh, like, yeah. <laughs> of course, I assume that so. is this how it current comes occupation. Out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alita just got back, and it turns out people did not like the United States very much. <laughs> I don't know, man. If I had taken that job and gone there, I would have been like, look, <laughs> you guys stay outside. I'm going to go into this house and talk to them alone. But it wouldn't have mattered. Right. They, of course. It's not like these people are idiots. Right. They know who we are. They know who's paying us. They know why we're asking us these questions. They're going to tell us what we want to hear. And that's how these contracts work. Yeah. A lot of these contracts work this way. We're like... When you look at the details and how they're done, it's very obvious that they were terrible and bad. And the research that they're done is not not correct and incorrectly collected. But technically, the terms of the contract were fulfilled and the, the company gets their paycheck. Exactly. You know? Ugh. Well, continuing right along with the absolute atrocities that the United States has committed over the last 20 years... Um, It's worth remembering that the United States is currently under investigation by the International Criminal Court, or the ICC, where prosecutors say they have evidence U.S. troops and the CIA committed acts of torture, cruel treatment, outrages upon personal dignity, rape, and sexual violence against Afghan detainees. A lot of this is along the lines of the typical kinds of stories we've heard come out of Guantanamo Bay, but it also went further, including... This is about to be a little graphic, so if you don't want to hear about it, just, like, skip forward, like, 20 seconds. Um, But included beating men on their testicles, forced rectal feeding um, of hunger strikers that was so harsh it gave one detainee chronic hemorrhoids and anal fissure and symptomatic rectal prolapse. And these kinds of atrocities have been carried out by U.S. forces and their Afghan allies from the very start of the invasion. In 2004, Human Rights Watch detailed how coalition troops would heavy-handedly arrest entirely innocent villagers and their children in the process, endangering and sometimes beating, insulting, and killing them. U.S. forces would also send them to suffer Guantanamo-like treatment for days and weeks, where their families would have no clue where they were. 
The scale of civilian deaths deliberately undercounted were further laid to bear by WikiLeaks' 2010 release of the Afghanistan war logs, which detailed coalition forces killing and wounding hundreds of Afghan civilians from 2004 to 2009. The logs highlighted instances of shocking recklessness, as when a, quote, smart bomb malfunctioned and landed on a village causing 19 casualties. Violence like this was constant throughout the rest of the war. 45 dead in an airstrike here, 30 dead in an airstrike there, another 45 killed in a strike on Taliban drug labs, 47 more when a wedding party was bombed, a Doctors Without Borders hospital was bombed. Each were justified as measures targeting the Taliban, each killed an appalling number of kids, um, as well as innocent men and women. The U.S. military, its allies, and the Afghan government killed an average of 582 civilians a year from 2007 to 2016, before rising to more than 1,100 between 2017 and 2019. Since 2016, 40% of airstrike casualties have been kids. WikiLeaks' 2010 release revealed something else, a special forces team that carried out secret kill-or-capture missions that involved sneaking up on their targets in the dead of night and often ended with them erroneously murdering civilians, children, and Afghan police. Under Generals Stanley McChrystal and then David Petraeus, such special forces operations were amplified and came to define the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, with regular disappearances and cases of fatal mistaken identity. Though an exact count of civilians killed is next to impossible, at a time when international forces were doing 20 night raids a night, one analysis estimated more than 1,500 civilians killed. It's fucked. Yeah, so I also just wanted to talk briefly about the U.S. context politically during this time, so basically the past 20 years. Um, Obviously, as we've mentioned, the immediate reasoning for invading Afghanistan in 2001 was the 9-11 attacks. Um, For any Zoomers listening, President Bush used this as an excuse to invade both Iraq and Afghanistan. So when Obama was campaigning for president, he promised to end the war in Iraq, but was more vague about Afghanistan, saying that he wanted to end the war, but also that he wanted to win the war, which would presumably mean like continuing to send U.S. troops there um, and is kind of different from just like ending the occupation. Um, And at the time, a lot of leftists were wary of those promises, partly because Obama had like previously written positive things about the war in Afghanistan. Um, So it was sort of difficult to trust those promises. When Obama took office in 2008, he declared ending the war in Iraq to be a top priority, although it wasn't until the end of 2011, with a year left in his first term, that he actually followed through on that promise and withdrew the U.S. military. So after Obama was reelected, he promised to end the war in Afghanistan by 2014, which obviously did not happen, although he did reduce the number of U.S. troops there. But over this time, he also sent troops into new countries, including Syria and Libya, and authorized tons of drone bombings, including against Pakistan and Somalia. So all of this to say that while Obama did reduce the actual number of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, which I think is talked about a lot, it's also important to note that in many ways he made things more dangerous for people living in the Middle East, um, including people in Afghanistan. 
At least he did reduce economic sanctions against Iran after the Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2015. Um, Trump later withdrew from that deal and Biden has kind of been like half-heartedly trying to return to it. Um, So remains to be seen what happens with that. Um, But Trump then began his time in office saying that he wanted to win the war in Afghanistan and that he would maintain troops there to continue, quote unquote, fighting terrorism. Um, But funnily enough, he also violated his like campaign slash early taking office promises when his administration reached an agreement on a peace deal with the Taliban. And that's what set the stage for the plan that the U.S. that U.S. troops would be withdrawing from Afghanistan by 2021. So finally, with Biden taking office, he began following through on that plan earlier this year and quickly withdrawing U.S. forces from the country. Um, he's said that the U.S. is on track to complete withdrawal by September 11th of this year, which is the original plan. Jesus. So, like, yeah, the way that the country like, just, like, <laughs> weaponizes that date at this point, it's just like, I know. It's we're so going to bring, we're gonna bring our, our boys back by September 11th, like, stares off into the distance at an American flag. It's so fucked. Yeah. I'm like, I, yeah, I don't know. It's almost like parody at this point. Um, like you could not make this shit up, but it's also like, I don't know, just a short 20 years after this whole thing started, like really hitting home the fact that it has truly been 20 years right. since the U S first sent troops into Afghanistan. Um, So, I mean, I wanted to mention all of this partly because I feel like it's important to think about the context of an imperial invading nation as well when we're talking about this stuff. Um, And for us as leftists in the U.S., just to, like, help us be aware of what the pressure points might be on our own government and what things have looked like up to this point. Um, I find it kind of noteworthy that while U.S. leaders have made a lot of promises about this war that seem to play to, like, what we might think their base wants, the reality of their policy has always been very different from those promises, whether they're Democrats trying to be like, we're going to be very like thoughtful and maybe like withdraw some troops. We're going to green the military. Right. Exactly. Um, Wasn't that Elizabeth Warren? Yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes, it was. Um, You know, it's like whatever, even like Republicans who are like, oh yeah, we're going to like go in and be super aggressive. That doesn't necessarily match the reality of what they're going to do. And I think part of this has to do with just the existing military establishment has a lot of power when it comes to U.S. military policy. um, And many of those people will carry over between administrations. Um, One big downside of the U.S.'s sort of like forever wars, these wars that last for a super long time, is that they build up this entrenched structure of experienced military leaders that's basically like, devoted to continuing military aggression, like in order for these jobs to exist, we have to stay at war forever. Um, And it becomes harder and harder to break that down when these people get more and more power that they're not willing to let go of. Um, So like, for example, even though Obama did withdraw some troops, he also started way more conflicts than he ended. It's just kind of like perpetuating this pattern. Um, I also think it kind of shows just the inertia that U.S. military decisions can have. Like once Trump had signed this peace deal, Biden seemed very reluctant to back out of it, even though he could have done so. And he has kind of said that, like, he didn't support aspects of it, but he just has to do it because Trump already signed it. 
I think like there's just a lot more continuity between administrations than there is difference, even when they're of different parties. Um, I think that's a good thing to just keep in mind as activists pushing for changes to foreign policy that like there is kind of this military establishment inertia that is going to do something different than what we might expect from like a purely Democratic or Republican Party line. Yeah, absolutely. They're all just one arm of capital. Inter- internationalism. I mean, there was there's a lot of discussion among the left now. Um, so I'm just going to interject my Please. thought about internationalism because Julia made a really good point. There's a lot of talk among the left about international internationalism now. I'm, I'm a fairly active DSA member also. And within DSA, there's a lot of talk about internationalism and what it is. And, you know, it is true that from administration to administration, there's not a lot of change that can be uh, affected on military interventions because military interventions are supported and pushed for by careerists in the military who who build their careers on um, winning wars. There's a whole industry in D.C. that needs wars to keep happening so that we can go in and, you know, keep doing what we're doing over there, not just the military, but there's a whole like international development complex that exists that goes into quote unquote, rebuild countries once we go in and destroy them. And, you know, it all serves capital. It is in the service of capital to go in and control the resources globally. Um, And internationalism, you know, we're in the belly of the beast. We live in the belly of empire. We are in the imperial core. And, you know, as leftists, as socialists, as people who want to see our, our military, um, withdraw and pull out of a lot of these areas and stop murdering people we have very little recourse in in stopping it when we focus so much on the military because the military acts as an arm of capital um but we do have a lot of recourse when acting to try to stop capital itself so like you know our work our labor empowers these capitalists they get all their power and wealth from our labor and so when we withhold that labor you know, we, we force their hand and to, and like, if we want to think about like, well, how do we, how do we start to think about being internationalists, leftists, we have to think about what empowers these imperialists to go abroad. Like there was a story, I think a few, maybe a few months ago, maybe it was last year. I don't know. COVID has really messed up my timeline in my head, but it happened somewhat recently. Um, where these Italian dock workers refused to put weapons on a ship that were headed to Israel because they knew it was going to be used against Palestinians. I mean, is that not internationalism? Is that not international solidarity? And this stemmed from labor. It stemmed from labor refusing to do particular work for imperialists. You know, I, I wanted to interject that because, because it's important for us. Like, yeah, there's a lot of awful stuff going on in Afghanistan. We feel helpless, um, but we live in the empire. Mm-hmm. And there are there are strategic ways that we can start to organize to start to think about how we bring empire to its knees. And it starts and ends with our labor for the imperialists. Hell yeah. Let's fucking bring them to their knees. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the fact that all of this well-trodden history of abuses that the United States has done in Afghanistan has suddenly been forgotten just as the Taliban has retaken the country is especially ironic given that the U.S. intervention played a leading role in the Taliban resurgence. Unsurprisingly, many ordinary Afghans weren't very happy with the corrupt and abusive government um, that 
the foreign occupiers had helped set up, nor with the rampant murder or abuse of their friends and families that they carried out. It wasn't unusual to see angry protests complete with acts of violence and Death to America chants to follow the U.S.'s U.S. military's patented oopsie drone strikes. Yeah, so when I was, um, I was visiting my aunt um, in Istanbul a couple years ago, a few months before COVID, and I went into this store and on they were like watching the news and it was of people chanting. It was like of news coverage of a protest of people chanting "Death to America." And they like the shopkeepers kind of like looked at me and were like, uh, and I was like, no, yeah, like I, yes, <laughs> yes, you keep watching that. And they were like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just like shared a moment of like, they were like, uh oh, this like American just walked in. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> you're correct. Yeah, <laughs> like I, mean, I agree. Definitely yes. <laughs> Death to America, but also as someone whose grandparents barely survived the genocide, also Death to Turkey. Yeah. So. Yeah. That out there. <laughs> yeah, fuck them all. Fuck um, them all. <laughs> yeah. um, one Afghan man told PBS in 2011, quote, these people come in the middle of the night. They break into houses. They bring dogs with them. They drag women out of the house. This is an offense to Islam. If the Taliban were hiding in my house, I wouldn't tell you. They don't dishonor our women, but your friends do. The Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction has been saying that these institutions have been a house of cards for a long time now, one small step away from collapse. Two years ago, the Washington Post published the Afghanistan Papers. These documents basically said everything the United States has been saying about the capabilities of the Afghan military and about how the war has been going was a bold-faced lie essentially conceding that the U.S. efforts in Afghanistan were failing completely. A lot of people are already comparing the U.S. leaving Afghanistan to the U.S. leaving Vietnam. And these two are very different. Like, I just, I'm, I've been watching a lot of cable TV because of watching my grandma, and everyone's just like, so how does this relate to Saigon? But, like, let's just break it down. Number one, the takeover by the Taliban Um, is extremely swift. This is much faster than what happened in Saigon. The incredibly rapid collapse in Afghanistan just underlies the ridiculousness of the entire nation-building project that the United States claimed to have embarked on after the invasion and occupation. Secondly, the fall of Afghanistan is much more self-inflicted by the United States. In December of 2001, the Taliban offered to surrender Kandahar, the last city they held, All they asked for was that their leader at the time, Mullah Omar, be held in house arrest instead of being shipped off to Abu Ghraib. That's correct. That is in um, Abu Ghraib is in Iraq, weirdly. But yes. Yes. (laughs) The Bush administration said, nope, we're not interested and embarked on another 19 and a half years of going backward. There was no point like that in Vietnam where the North Vietnamese offered to surrender and the United States said no and extended the conflict. So if anything, current, the, the current, sorry to interrupt, no, but please. the current secretary of defense I, or minister of defense, I guess is what they would call, call him in Afghanistan that was just appointed by the Taliban was somebody that, that, that snitched on fellow Taliban members, but was put in, in Guantanamo Bay instead of being rewarded. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's how we treat right. people. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this is just like just fucked beyond belief um 
And the manner in which the United States withdrew from Afghanistan speaks of imperial hubris and arrogance. Instead of accepting responsibility for the situation it created, the United States scapegoated the Afghan government and is putting much of the blame for all of this on Pakistan as well. The United States can shift blame for the disaster precisely because it cannot be held accountable by the international community and is not willing to accept its fate as a declining empire who has lost the ability to impose order on countries that it has destroyed. Uh, so the TLDR is the U.S. fucked it all up from day one, um, which we cannot be surprised of. And so when we when you listen to things about what's happening with the Taliban now and um, you know, there's already like tons of misinformation going around about it. Um, like some of the footage like has been shown to actually be in Syria. That's like been getting viral reposts and things like that. So just like really check into what you think is going on as much as you can, because we are an imperial force and all of our media is going to be painted um, in that light, too. So very important to go forward. <laughs> Speaking of going forward, <laughs> there is a really good journalist I actually recommend following on Twitter about Afghanistan, um, Anand Gopal, A-N-A-N-D-G-O-P-A-L, Anand Gopal. He was in, he's a, he was a journalist. He was embedded in Syria when ISIS was, when they were at war with ISIS. Um, he is very knowledgeable about Afghanistan as well and has really important sources on the ground and his Twitter feed is full of really interesting up-to-date information. So if anyone is interested in that, I would find him on Twitter and follow him. Hell yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about this like weird liberal virtue signaling about how the U S shouldn't have left Afghanistan because of feminism. Uh, I don't let's well. Yeah. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin on this one. We've talked about this in other episodes, but it's, a really common tactic for um, colonialists, imperialists, fascists, etc., to use this idea of like protecting women as a cause for the violence that they perpetrate. So in the days following 9-11, images of um, Afghani women in burqas were like widely circulated as a way to help kind of sell the war across the U.S. Laura Bush um, gave a speech about how the U.S. needed to invade Afghanistan to, quote, give women and girls a voice. It doesn't really take rocket scientists to know that protecting women has absolutely nothing to do with the United States reasoning for invading Afghanistan and occupying it for 20 years. While there are some serious threats posed to women in Afghanistan, just as there are all over the world, um, there's much more serious threats, such as like being sent to jail for trying to leave abusive husbands and potentially no longer being allowed to work rather than this focus on like look, women have to wear burqas. Clearly they're like super oppressed, which is just like a very Western view and United States centric view of like what women's oppression looks like. Also, um, this tweet by Mike Duncan and essentially what he's talking about is how from 2019 to 2020, there's a list of countries ranked on their um, treatment of women and women's rights. And Afghanistan was 166th out of the 167 countries that they ranked. So um, yeah, 2019 was still during the US occupation. Did we not liberate liberate women? (laughs) Are women not free? I don't know. So yeah, we can uh, piece that one together. Yeah, damn. 
Um, yeah, I mean, when the communists went into Afghanistan, uh, one of their parts, part of their plans was the liberation of women. So I don't understand why we fought them so hard. <laughs> like, we should have been like, cool, that's totally our plan too, to liberate these, right. these ladies. That's um, all we want. Yeah, like, international oh, yeah. feminism. All we want is free women. Um, thank <laughs> God for the commies. No, obviously, liberation of women is a red herring forgive the figure of speech, but um, yeah, liberation of any population anywhere we are is never the main goal. We don't want parts of our own population liberated. So it's ridiculous for them to try to turn around and tell us they want to liberate populations elsewhere. Um, It's insulting to our collective intelligence. Um, You know, if it interferes with the business of empire, it will actively be fought against. You know, any liberation that happens for a given population is accidental. Uh, it's an accidental byproduct and it's sold to the rest of the world as the main course. It's really, really very funny. Um, you know, the empire comes for the liberalization of the economy, not the liberating of people. And, you know, when bin Laden rose to fight the communists, you know, um, not because you know, he, he didn't do it because they wanted to nationalize or bring democracy to Afghanistan, but because they were secular and would bring some type of liberation to the population there and you know some liberatory rules and policies for women and otherwise oppressed groups you know we were we were quick to be allies with with bin laden not direct allies bin laden would never directly ally with evil non-muslim entities or even 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 some evil muslim entities by his view um you know it was always indirect uh you know through pakistan and other mujahideen groups um but it's it's just it's just ludicrous, you know. I mean, it's it's ludicrous that we're told told these things. Um, it, it's not only patently untrue. It's like I feel like it has become. I, I mean, maybe it's not, but I feel like it is becoming more and more ridiculous. I mean, maybe you know what? Maybe not to the liberal mainstream that writes in our newspapers and talks on our MSNBC channels or whatever. They seem to still buy into this these fantasies about what the U.S. does abroad. I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful that it's a minority. I don't think a, the generation born most recently would buy into this or even in the last 30 years. Um, but it is purely an accident of um, it, it's kind of like what we do with the Kurds. You know, the, there's 20 million Kurds in the Middle East. They do not have their own country. Not that I'm a fan of drawing borders and making new countries based on ethnicity. I don't think ethno states are a solution yeah, to anything. Right. But but you like it here first. You heard it here first. No ethno states, ethno states. Um, sorry, but um, like we keep partnering with them. You know, we'll, we'll we'll partner with the Kurds in Iraq. We'll partner with the Kurds in northern Syria, and we'll promise them all these things. And the moment it's inconvenient, leave them to the wolves. I mean, like it's like how many how many times do we need to do that for it to be obvious that we care about nothing except our own hegemony, power, and profit i mean how many times do we need to do this to people it's so wild because i feel like the brain worms of most u.s citizens are like they're like it is wild like how can you not know how can you not like come to these conclusions but you know here we are at the end of the world together i stay up every night thinking about that yeah (laughs) people have things that keep me up at night (laughs) 
people have no um, material analysis. That's the problem. That's the ultimate problem. Yes. <laughs> More Marxism in schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Masks and Marxism. Max, masks and <laughs> Marx. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so just to kind of wrap up um, this episode as we're kind of nearing the end, I wanted to talk about basically the current refugee crisis. Because of the U.S.'s role in not only destabilizing the country and leaving it open for the Taliban to take over, but also because any Afghans who worked with the U.S., so like as translators or any other types of assistance for U.S. occupation, um, are now at risk of death by Taliban leaders. And the U.S. has a moral obligation to open its borders to Afghan refugees. Um, Afghans are in urgent need of asylum, and over 2 million have reportedly fled the country. In 2020, uh, some 44,000 had already requested asylum in Europe. And earlier this summer, a bipartisan letter to the White House suggested that as many as 18,000 Afghans had applied for visas, a figure that is obviously higher today. Um, and these things were happening before the U.S. announced its its withdrawal. Yeah, going off of that, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the situation for queer and gender nonconforming people specifically, um, because those are a lot of the most vulnerable refugees. And also a lot of Western countries like the US and Canada have existing laws that should supposedly allow people to get asylum for those reasons. Uh, but those are not always followed through on, obviously, even if you check all the boxes and say all the right things and wait all of the years that it takes, that is not a guarantee that you will be able to follow that process. Um, but particularly at this moment, a lot of LGBTQ folks are under threat of the death penalty if their identity is discovered. Um, and I think similar to what we were talking about with women's rights, queer and trans rights are increasingly used as an excuse for why the U.S. needs to invade other countries like Afghanistan. But the truth is war has done nothing to protect LGBTQ people, and it has actually made their lives more dangerous and made organizing for LGBTQ rights a lot more precarious. Um, I was reading some interviews with queer and trans folks in Afghanistan. Um, like Zoe mentioned earlier, it's very hard to like sift through all of the weird US imperialist bias in some of these like mainstream media articles. But a lot of people were talking about the fact that the years of war has made it really hard. Like there's just so much more conflict and it's so much harder to have like an ongoing organizing effort or even just like a safe and fun nightlife um, when this is happening. And I don't know, I think it's like, it's important to say that like things are worse for most LGBTQ people in Afghanistan than say like a lot of us in the US. Um, but the US government has a huge degree of responsibility for that. Um, particularly like we talked about earlier, because of the ways that it supported the development of the Taliban. Um, and if the U.S. government really wanted to help with this, they would let people escaping Afghanistan who want to leave and go somewhere else into the country 
rather than like continuing a military conflict that is actively making their lives worse and more dangerous. Um, And I think that that's something that we as queer people and leftists in the US need to be pushing for too, um, because that is, you know, something that we have the ability to put some pressure on the government as a solution that will actively benefit LGBTQ Afghans rather than further harming them. So yeah, that's my two cents on that. An important perspective, and I'm so glad you you added it, just like all of you, you precious angels. Belita, do you have anything else you want to say before? Just that if we find this situation frustrating and maddening and heartbreaking, as we should, it's not the first time we've done it. It won't be the last time we've done it. And if we want to truly be an internationalist force, I would look into how to think about strategizing for long-term visions. Um, you know, to me, you know, I'm a Marxist. So, so for me, everything starts and ends with the power of our labor and they can't do a goddamn thing unless we work. So to me, it's like, how do we strategize and, and, and bring this empire down by hitting them where it hurts most. And that is, that is withholding our labor and, and building up our unions and making sure that while we do that, while we organize, we put this in people's minds and we have them understand the importance of our power and our work. And, you know, that's, that's where we're, that's where we're powerful. That's where Americans are powerful. That's where we can force their hand and, and international suffering that is imposed by the United States. Now, international suffering might not, won't end, you know, like shit's still going to happen everywhere, but at least the power that we have that we can harness is in our labor and it's here at home. And, and, you know, that's where our starting point should be. Hell Hell fucking yes. (laughs) Well, there's just nothing like a pep talk from Walida. Yeah. (laughs) An internationalist Marxist pep talk from (laughs) ours truly, Walida. Um, Well, if you would like to support anti-imperialist propaganda in the United States, you can go to patreon.com slash season of the bitch and give us your money. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee. And you can go to our website. There's some merch there. There's some info there. Um, and you should join our Discord because it's it's the best. It's a good time. It's a good community. I freaking love you all. Thank you so much, Walita, for joining us. It was so fun. Yeah. Yes. So back this week. This was great. Yes. Oh, love you. Love, love you. you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. the bitch.